Genesis chapter 4, if you want to turn there, we'll pick up in verse 6 tonight. As we continue our journey through the book of Genesis, again, remind yourself that the foundations of really all of human society, the foundations of our faith, the origination of sin, uh, mankind's responsibility to God, uh, the scarlet thread of redemption, the totality of humans uh, existing on this earth and, and how we relate to God and to other people, all of those things are foundationally uh, found here in the book of Genesis. So the things that we learn here give us insight into what will transpire by the time we get to the New Testament um, as, as we see God finish this incredible plan of redemption that has its first glimpses here in the book of Genesis. And before we get into our text tonight, I, I want to kind of remind you uh, of a couple of things. This week is a shortened week, so if you normally join us on Thursday night, remember we're not going to be gathering together. That's Thanksgiving Day, so uh, if you haven't heard me say it, we're not skipping over uh, Thanksgiving. We're going to actually celebrate Thanksgiving, so please be thankful. But on Wednesday at noon and then at 7.30, uh, we'll be having Thanksgiving service here. Uh, in the main sanctuary, so I'd encourage you to be here for that. It's going to be a great time. Worship and a study that I've entitled, How Big Is Your God? So uh, I hope you'll come out for that as we set the stage for being thankful on Thursday. It's not International Football Day. Um, don't, I'm not opposed to you watching football. As a matter of fact, I will probably watch some football, but uh, that's not the main reason that we celebrate Thanksgiving. Amen? Secondarily, uh, as we dig in tonight, Remember and remind yourself of a couple of things. Number one, this is history. This is not a tale. This is not a story. This is literally the history of humankind. And because it's the history of humankind and it's the glimpses that we see of God dealing with humanity, remember that God's character never changes. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the things that we see him do... And the way we see him interact with Adam and Eve and with the generations of Adam and Eve, which will include Cain and Abel and then onward through Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and all of those that we will see. This was a historical account. You need to look for the consistency of God dealing with mankind. And you're going to see that again beginning tonight. And so would you pray with me and let's ask God to bless our time in the Word as we study from verse 6 here in Genesis 4. Father, we thank you for your amazing word. And Lord, as we read it, we see glimpses of ourselves. We see glimpses of our distant past, our history. Uh, we see glimpses of how you deal with mankind. Uh, and most of all, we see your hand of love reaching out uh, in the early stages of man's sojourn here on this earth. And we are so grateful that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You change not by your own word. Uh, what was and is and is to come has always been you. And we thank you for that consistency, that you didn't have uh, one way of dealing with humankind then and another way now. You have been absolutely, supremely consistent. You've been fair and just, and we are grateful. Bless us tonight with the understanding of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, the severity of sin. The severity of sin. A lot of people, especially in our modern context, when they think of the word sin, they almost rebel against it. It's like, well, there's really no such thing as sin. Why would I even concern myself with it? What you find Jeff as a problem. I don't find any problem with it. It's not a problem to me that it's not a problem. That's because we live in a relativistic, a moralistic, and in essence, a, an existential uh, time in human history where things are because you say they are, I say they are, when the relativism that I express is my own morality and I want you either to not worry about it or to agree with me, God has had a consistent moral standard, a consistent standard of character, and he has never changed. So whatever was morally correct 
for Adam, for Eve, for Cain, and for Abel are also morally correct for us today. That's hard for us to understand. Well, it's a different world. Yes, it's a different world, but God's character in that sense has absolutely been 100% consistent. If he were not so, then he would be unfair. And so he's not unfair, he's perfectly just. And so to that end, he is the one that defines what sin is. Because the standard whereby something is judged to be sin is God's standard. And this is a very important point for us to understand. Because the standard is God's, then what he says is sin is sin. What he says is correct is correct. What he says is wrong is wrong. And there is no differing with him on the subject. It is his to call. He created us. We are subject to him. And the way he defines things is absolute. Now in his dealing with us, he uses his justice, his mercy, he uses his grace, he uses fairness, all of those things. But the standards themselves, in that sense, are absolutes. So if murder was a problem then, murder is a problem now. If stealing was a problem then, then stealing is a problem now, no matter whether you call it, well, I'm cheating on my taxes or I'm robbing a bank. From God's perspective, he's the one that's defined these things. So as we look at the issue of sin, we have to realize it is from God's perspective, not man's. Because man would have a whole ton, a host of things that would no longer be sin. In our day and time, I can give you a few of them. Homosexuality. Homosexuality, in God's view, is a sin. It's not okay with God. And no matter whether we call it an alternate lifestyle or whether we call it something that's acceptable to us as a people, it is still sin in the eyes of God. Sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, fornicating, is still sin. It's not love. It is not a steady relationship. It's sin. And so when we look at the origin of sin, and we look at God's response to sin, we have to remember that his character doesn't change. So if he says something's wrong, and he announces that there's a problem with it, and the penalty is severe, you can absolute bet your last dollar that he's right. And so as we read these words, remember that what's in view is sin from God's perspective. Not whether you like it, I like it, we think it should be sin or not sin. It's God's perspective on the issue. Many Christians get in trouble because they try and redefine what they think sin should be. God doesn't accept your definition or mine because his character has never changed. So as we look at the severity of sin, picking up in verse 6, keep that in view. And so the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Remember the story we saw it last time? We have, we have this incredible picture uh, of what happens when one person decides that they're going to disobey God and another person decides they're going to obey God. And here it is. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, he's saying, look, I told you what I expected of you. I gave you the standard. The whole context of everything that's said here about Cain and Abel is based on the premise that God was holding them responsible for what he had already told them. It wasn't a guess. They weren't trying to figure it out. It was not ambiguous in any way, shape, or form. God had clearly told them, this is what I require of you. Here's the first sacrifice, and the first sacrifice is going to require blood. I don't want your fruit basket. So Cain and Abel 
have this choice to make. The same choice that we've been talking about with all humankind. In order for your love to be real, it has to have volition. As you act on it in volition, you validate which side you're choosing. Cain and Abel are an example of that. Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, if you had done what I asked, there would have been absolute acceptance. And if you do not do well, then sin, this is the first use of that word, lies at the door. Very important that you realize what's being said there. It doesn't say you've been forced into sin. It says the opportunity for you to choose wrongly puts sin in view for you, and it is your choice whether you act on it or not. It puts it at the door. It puts it in view. It does not make you do it. Nor does it set up a circumstance or a situation where you are tempted beyond any ability to resist. It simply says that sin now becomes an option that you can clearly choose to do or not do. And its desire is for you. We have now this incredible battle that begins between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Between that which is right and that which is wrong. Between light and dark. And so there is a choice to be made. And a day of reckoning, in essence, is in view. And the reason that, that when we think on this, it, it, is, it is imminent in our minds. We're, we're sitting there thinking, well, you know, what choice did he have? I mean, come on. He had enough choice, and that's what we need to remember. Did he have a lot of other choices? Was he given 95 things that he could choose besides making a bloody sacrifice out of an animal and a, and a skin uh, that would be a, a cloak, a, a tunic, a covering, an atonement? No, he was given exactly one other choice. And he chose that one other choice. Sometimes God gives us all kinds of different choices. And sometimes he gives us maybe just two, one right one and one wrong one. You have to be careful what you do with your choices because sin lies at the door. It's a very real possibility almost every moment of every day. Can I get an amen? Because it is. You have choices to make. You have choices to make every day. I have a choice whether I'm going to follow the speed limit on the way to church. You all have the same choice. It's posted out there. It's either 55 or 65, depends on where you're at. You have a choice. So it's not that CHP officers, you know, being a mad, mean person when they pulled you over because you're doing 85, that's because you chose to break the law. You sinned. You missed the mark. You see, what man likes to do is blame God for the choice. Well, if you hadn't have made me like this, I wouldn't have done that. That is clearly not what the Bible teaches. Let no one say when he sins that he sins of God, for God cannot be tempted to sin, nor does he tempt anyone. Plain teaching of Scripture. Sin lies at the door. Its desire is for you. But you should, notice this, here's your response. Here's what we should be doing. You should rule over it. In other words, God has given us the power, the capacity to make the right choice. And if we don't make the right choice, it's not God making you make the wrong choice. It's you choosing to make the wrong choice. You should rule over sin. It was that way from the beginning. It is that way today. Now, that doesn't say that sin isn't prevalent. It doesn't say that sin isn't powerful. It doesn't say that temptation doesn't tempt. That's not what Scripture says. But it does say that from the very beginning, mankind has been given the capacity to resist sin. Very, very clear in this passage. Now, let's look at the rest of it. Now, Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. It went from a conversation to a confrontation, to murder. 
And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Now, whenever God asks a question, he's not looking for information. Amen? He, not look, he knows exactly what's happened. He's God. But he's always giving opportunity for the one thing that we should do whenever we have done something that we know is wrong, and that's repent, turn. Tell God, I have messed up. We'll look at this in a little bit. He said, I don't know. You can almost hear the attitude. Why are you asking me? I don't know. Am I responsible for him? Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? Again, doesn't need the answer to it. He's not looking for, you know, man, I just, I wasn't paying attention. God, God wasn't asleep. You know, he wasn't taking a nap. He wasn't on some other part of the universe to where he couldn't see what was going on. God knows all things at all times. What have you done? For the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The, blood of the, the, the voice of the blood of every last innocent life ever taken on the face of this earth cries out to God. God knows every last one of them. Whether that's in a war or a murder or whether that's an abortion. The death of the innocent, God is concerned. He's always been concerned with the innocent life, and he will never not be concerned with innocent life. No matter what that innocent life may be called by humankind, he is the creator of life, he is the creator of the life-giving processes, and he alone gets to define what is done with life. It is not our call. And anyone that takes innocent life has a problem with God. And it's a problem that can be forgiven, by the way. And whether that's death during war or an argument or murder or whether that is the sin of abortion, God can forgive it and will if we ask. But make no mistake, God values all life. He sees every last one. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And so now you who are cursed, you are cursed from the earth which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. You, you notice the progression here? Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day and basically did nothing but just grab their food whenever they wanted it. Their sin produced the need for industry, technology, work, hard work, sweating, taxes, everything else that you can think of that goes along with humankind. And, and now it gets even worse. You see, the further you get from God, the worse off your life becomes. It doesn't get better. You see, the enemy lies and says, now just go ahead and take it. Just do it your way. And God's saying, please don't. This is the severity of sin. And it goes from bad to worse. It doesn't go from kind of, sort of, not okay, to, you know, pretty much kind of okay, but not really too terribly bad. It goes from bad to worse. It always does. That's the way God works. And the reason he does that is he knows what destroys us. He has given us principles that we're to live by. And when we live by them, we live in blessing. But when we disregard God and what he said, then he ratchets up the pressure on us by ratcheting up our life circumstance so that we'll pay attention and repent. Notice what he says. 
When you till the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. In other words, not only is the farming that you used to do, which was fairly easy, not going to happen easily anymore, you're not even going to be able to stay in one place. This is where mankind, uh, suburbia, is born, right here. You're going to have to wander around. You'll be a fugitive and a vagabond. You won't have a place to call home, basically, is what he's saying. Seems extreme to you and I, but remember, this is the very foundation of human society. And what happens with Cain and Abel is going to bear fruit in the lives of absolutely every human family that follows. Make no mistake that your sin in your family will follow you. And can it be forgiven? Absolutely. Can God change those things that uh, we've learned generationally? Absolutely. I've watched him do it. But sin has a consequence. It's severe. And that consequence can oftentimes be generations of kids that are affected by the parent's sin. Please be careful. Please be careful with how you raise your children. Because you're either setting them up with the best chance and best opportunity for success, or you may be setting them up for failure. Sin does that. And if you don't believe it, all you've got to do is ask, ask a household where there's been a couple of generations of alcoholics or drug abusers or gangbangers. People who've been in multiple marriages and watched them up, down, dissolve. New person comes in. It bears horrible fruit for generations. Make no mistake. Don't think you'll be the one that will escape it because you won't. You may get away with it for a while, but God's character doesn't change. It'll, it'll, it'll bear a price. Praise God for His grace and His mercy and His kindness and His goodness. You'll get that as well. But sin is severe and the consequences can last a lifetime. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. You can almost hear him. It's like, man, this just seems so unfair. Surely you've driven me out this day from the face of the ground, and I should be hidden from your face. I should be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen to me that anyone who finds me will kill me. You can almost see it. You, you can, that's a fairly rational point of view. It's like, seriously? Man, when people find out what I've done, I, I'm doomed. And so God actually in His grace and mercy helps Cain out. The Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone find him, <clears throat> should find him and then kill him. So some questions. What happens when you harden your heart to God? What happens when you harden your heart? What's going to happen in your life? What will happen in my life when I choose to repeatedly disobey what God has said? And we're set up for the understanding of the way God works in this passage towards all of our sinful behavior. And it doesn't matter what kind it is. This is God's basic response. He's going to say to us, look, this isn't what I asked for. I'm going to ask you some questions. And when he does that, that's the Holy Spirit working in your life telling you it's time to get right with God. It's time to come clean. It's time to just say, Lord, I'm sorry I blew it. I honestly, firmly, totally, and 100% believe that if in this place Cain had said, fallen down on his face and said, Lord God of heaven, against you and you alone have I sinned. I've taken my brother's life that we'd have a different story in this passage. There still would have been consequences, but the consequences would have been way less severe. Know that when God gives you an opportunity to repent, that's your best opportunity to limit the damages, to limit the consequences of the severity of sin. That's where God's saying, you can change now, and take the easy road. Or you can keep going down this road and take the hard road. The Greek word, the Hebrew word here, both 
in, in Greek, it's hamartia. And, and that word, and also the Hebrew word, hata, simply means to miss the mark. It, it actually will translate it into English as an archery term, very often used when throwing spears at targets. Uh, if you were to line up on the target and you throw your spear, the inference is you're trying to hit the target. To sin means to miss the center. So sin isn't necessarily, as we often think, something that's way off the mark. And the reason this is important is sin begins in the mind. And it begins with a whole bunch of attitudes, which we'll look at in a moment, that start to question whether God is good and whether God actually knows what he's doing and whether God can actually see what he claims he can see. You see, sin begins in aiming at the right target but then not trusting your aim. Not following through. So when you think of sin, you have to think of it from God's perspective. Rebellious thoughts always lead to missing the mark. Always. You see, a lot of people just think, well, my life kind of went this direction, and that's why I did this. I would point you to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And it says there, There is no temptation that has overtaken you except such that is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, and with that temptation he will also make a way of escape so that you will be able to bear it. So when someone says, well, you know, it was just too tough. That is misjudging God's character because the Bible says it's never too tough. It may be tough. It may be hard. It may be a difficult choice, but it is never so difficult that you can say, well, God just didn't give me any choice. No, what's really true is you didn't like the choice that God gave you. Very often that's where we get in trouble, right? I was like, well, I, you know, I don't really want to do that. I don't like God's way. I like my way. You, you see, sin is missing the mark, and it begins with missing by a little bit. It doesn't begin with outright rebellion. It just ends up in outright rebellion. And that rebellion has results. Uh, and they are severe. Jeremiah 5 says this in verse 23, all the way down to verse 25. But this people has a defiant and a rebellious heart, speaking of the children of Israel, but it applies to us in the sense that we are part of the human race. They've revolted, they've departed. They did not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives rain both in the former and the latter in its season. He reserves for us appointed weeks of harvest, and it goes on in verse 25 to say something very unique. Your iniquities have turned these things away. And your sins have withheld good from you. You see, it's our deal. It's our, it's our part. And the reason I'm sharing this with you, the way I'm sharing it with you, is I think sometimes we don't think of sin the way we should think of it. We kind of flirt with it. We kind of mess with it. We kind of like, well, I don't know if that, you know, maybe that's not sin. Or maybe it's sin for them, but it's not sin for me. Maybe it's a liberty, but you know that God's Word specifically has told you this is not something a child of God should do. Now, I want you to notice what that passage says. Here's one of the results. That when you choose to disobey God, when you choose to walk in rebellion to God, just as Cain does, God wanted to do good to everyone in Adam and Eve's family, wanted to do good to Adam and Eve. But what happened when they sinned? He withheld good. They went from picking fruit to planting a garden to pulling weeds to some hard farming, right? What happens to Cain and Abel. 
they go from hard farming to wandering, trying to find food in the bushes. This is God withholding what he wants to do, which is to be really good to you. So if you really want God's very best, then give him your very best. Do what he asks you to do. Live the way he asks you to live. Call right what he says is right and call wrong what he says is wrong. And that's not a a legalism. That's God wants to bless you. And if you want those blessings, those blessings flow out of obedience to what he has said. That's That's not picking on us. That's saying, Jeff, I know what's best for you. And here's some things you really shouldn't do. And if you do them, there's going to be a price that you're going to pay for that sin. And it will require that I withhold blessing from you. The seeds of sin, you can see them here. Just as Proverbs 21 says to us, a a haughty look. It begins with a look, a proud heart. The plowing of the wicked begins there with sin. You You see, when you start to think of things from God's perspective, he's actually being good to us by warning us of these things. He's saying, look, I want to be good to you. I don't want you to just fear me. I do want you to respect me and honor me, to glorify me, to worship me. That's part of our relationship with God. We worship him. He's the king of kings. Amen? Otherwise, what happens is you set up another false god. Why do you think the first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me? You ever thought of this? It's because your temptation is to make that god you. That's the first one that you turn to in false gods is you. You try and please yourself. You want to see it in action? Right there. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Who was the false god? Themselves. Narcissism was birthed in Genesis chapter 2. You see, we, we want to worship. The question is, who will we worship? We were created to worship. The question is, who? The seeds of sin here are are envy, they're pride. Instead of that humility that we should have, Cain actually questions God. it's, It's crazy to me when you think about what's going on here. This battle that ensues. You have the seed of the serpent, and you have the seed of the woman. And they're already doing this. If any of you in here think that you're not going to go through spiritual warfare as a child of God, the book of Genesis Genesis should convince you otherwise. Because it happened from day one. That battle started right here in Genesis. And it continues to this day. And and you can spot those seeds of sin. You you can spot those things that are... In your life, you, you can notice the danger areas. You know, when I get prideful or arrogant or self-righteous, or I get envious, or I start hating on people, I know sin is at the door. It's like right around the corner. If any of you ever, you know, got up and it's kind of been dark at night, um, we have a couple of Labradors. They're about 80 pounds each. They're large. And, and I've gotten up a couple times at night believing that they were over on their beds, laying down, only to find that when I go around the corner of the door, one of them's standing right there, and it's like, <gasps> like freaks me out. I know we have dogs in the house, but they're not supposed to be there. Sin's like that. Sin doesn't tell you where it's going to be all the time. Sin doesn't dial you up and, oh, by the way, there's going to be a temptation to sin tomorrow at 12.23. And it's going to look like this. It's just at the door. It's around the corner. It's right there. It's always lurking. You don't know when it's going to pop up. That's why we have to be prepared as the children of God. That's why we need to read the Word. We need to study what God says about our lives. 
We need to fellowship with each other. We need to pray. We need to seek the Holy Spirit. We need to walk in faith and walk in love. You see, when you put love supremely on the list of things that you want to do every day, can you imagine if Cain had sought to love Abel? But Cain didn't seek to love Abel. Cain sought to get even. Cain sought to take the upper hand, take control, satisfy his own longings and desires. Do you see how those things can get you into trouble? John actually will record it in his first letter there in 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. It says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. You might want to mark this one. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is he who does not love his brother. Check out what the rest of it is. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning. Guess where that's referring to? Right here in Genesis chapter 4. That we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Envy, jealousy, strife, hatred, things that are very obviously a lack of love are never from God. So when you see them, Ooh, sin is at the door. Humble. You go to oh, Lord, change my heart. Change my heart, oh God. I, I'm thinking about my brother wrong. I'm thinking about my sister. Remember what it says there in John. Righteous works and love go together. That's pretty narrow, isn't it? Maybe it's not to you, it is to me. That's why narrow is the way that leads unto righteousness, and few there are who find it. You see, it's not this big, broad path that lets us do anything that we want. It's righteousness and love. It's doing things God's way. It's avoiding sin. That's why we're supposed to love one another. Because when you really love somebody, you're not going to harm them. When you love somebody, you're not going to steal their spouse. When you love somebody, you're not going to take their stuff. You see, when Scripture says sin is at the door, it's always at the door. There's always something you can do that's wrong. But for us, we're supposed to say, "Mm -mm -mm, not on my watch, because that's not loving and that's not righteous. Pretty simple, isn't it? If you apply that test, you will rarely go wrong in life. Two things. Is it righteous? And the word righteous means right with God. It's the easiest way to define it. Not your perspective. Is it right with God? And is it loving? If you can answer yes to both, you're golden. If you answer no to either one, you've got a problem. If you answer no to both, you are thinking demonically. Is that crazy or what? So when someone says, well, I don't know what to do, is it righteous and is it loving? If it's yes to both, good decision. One of them Either one, is the, the answer is no, but the, well, it's loving, but it wasn't righteous. Well, that's kind of not so good. It was righteous, but not loving, also not so good. But if both of them are missing, you have a problem with God. You can almost be absolutely positive that what you're about to do, what you're thinking of, is sin. God keeps things simple for us because we're kind of simple folks. 
And by the way, there's something here that's kind of hidden within the text. Adam and Eve taught Cain and Abel how to sin. Their lives were an example of how not to follow God. If you have children that you're raising, maybe they're near adulthood or maybe they are adults, as a parent, one of the most valuable things as a Christian parent you can do is never teach your kids how to sin. Don't let them see you sin. Don't talk about it. Don't do it. Don't go there. Live your life holy before God. Be righteous and be loving. Do you want your kids to turn out as well as they possibly can on your account? Don't do what Adam and Eve did. Don't do what Cain and Abel are doing as your kids are watching. They're actually looking to see how we live our lives. What was Cain really questioning? There's some things I can just share with you from the passage. They questioned the Word of God. At this time, it was literally the voice of God. For us, the voice of God is contained within the Scriptures. But they were questioning God's Word. They literally are saying, well, we don't believe what you said. Abel believed. Cain didn't believe. They were questioning God. He was questioning God's omniscience. Well, I, you know, I don't think he does know everything. Matter of fact, I know more than God. I'm going to do it my way. Definitely questioning his omnipresence. You can see that in the questions. Instead of just saying, well, God, you know where I was. You know that I killed my brother. It's like, well, maybe I got away with it. He was questioning God's power. His omnipotence. Maybe I can get away with this. Let's make up my own story. Definitely questioning God's loving nature. You don't love me as much as you do Abel. You accept it. You, you, you're not being fair. And surely questioning God's faithfulness. These are horrible things to accuse God of. Because they question his integrity. They impugn who he is. Because he is love. He absolutely is these things. Jesus himself is the word. Amen? God can't be taught anything, Scripture says. So so he absolutely does know everything. And as God, he's resident everywhere at all times. He's capable of doing anything. And so as you think on this passage, Cain didn't trust God. Cain trusted himself. There it is. What will be codified in the first commandment given to Moses is exactly the thing that trips up Cain. One God, and he doesn't want him. Some people have asked, well, you know, where did Abel go? Because he's gone, right? He's dead. Blood's crying out from the ground. What happened? Because the book of Hebrews mentions Abel. And so we know he's a person of faith. We know that when we get to heaven, we're going to see him. Where did he go? I'll help you sort this out really quickly. When you read Luke chapter 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. When you read that passage, you have to read very carefully that there is a single place that at that time was divided into two compartments. One righteous, one unrighteous. One a place that Jesus would call paradise as he spoke to the thief on the cross, both at that time spoken of as Sheol, but one very good and one a place of torment. And so read that passage. It will give you a little bit of background. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus himself, speaking about his own being risen from the dead, said this in verse 39 of Matthew 12, as he answers this question that's posed to him, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. And then he 
make sure that everybody understands it. He says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So where did Abel go? He went to Abraham's bosom. People say, oh, well, that's some other kind of salvation. No, no, it's not, because Scripture actually continues and gives us a perfect understanding of what was going on so that you can understand that God's character cannot be impugned and there was not an old way of salvation and a new way of salvation. Salvation has always been by faith. Amen? That faith results in grace. God's grace is how our sins are forgiven. And so when the Old Testament saints died in faith, they died with that same available grace, but that grace had not yet been made a reality, so they were waiting for the Lord Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sin, just as for the unjust, that he must bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Verse 19, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison who were formerly disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved together through water. He says, look, I took care of Noah as well. I took care of those Old Testament saints. That place that is declared to be there in the center of the earth, the place that ultimately uh, we, we will see uh, finitely when Jesus is risen, the righteous side of it is emptied out. And so now there are only unrighteous waiting the great white throne judgment there of Revelation 20 and 21 as, as finally the provision for the dealing with the devil is, is carried out. But you see this, this righteous place uh, spoken of in Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is the verse that Jesus quoted, by the way, when he was in the synagogue, and he st- stopped about halfway through. Because the Lord had anointed me to preach tidings to the poor, sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, which is the part he didn't read because he hadn't done it yet, and the opening of the prison to those who were bound. Ephesians 4, another piece. There in verse 7, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift, and therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. He's talking about Abraham's bosom. Clear it out. Now, who is this he ascended? What does it mean? But he first descended to the lower parts of the earth. So at the time Abel died, he went to Abraham's bosom. Abraham was not the first to go there. Abel Abel was. He was the first inhabitant. First one to go to paradise. And so when Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise, the reason he said that is he was going to go set the captives free. Take them home. That place is now empty. So Abel being the first one to go to paradise. Cain, on the other hand, when he died, the other side of the abyss that you'll see there in Luke 16, that great gulf that was fixed, that place of torment. Why do we need to repent? The big thing is, God will let you do what you want to do. God will give you what you ask for. If you want to sin, He will allow you to sin. And so one of the reasons we need to repent is we make bad choices sometimes. Amen? The good news is, grace is available when you repent. You say, Lord, I blew it. I messed up. It's that beautiful picture of 1 John chapter 1 begins with that verse that all of us should have memorized. For God, God is, is rich in that incredible mercy that he has for us, but he's asking us, look, to admit it. It's like, I need to repent. 
I need to tell God, look, I'm sorry the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. For if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. We need to do that unless you don't want your sins taken care of. Do you want to carry them yourself? you want to hang on to them? I don't, I don't want to. So why do we need to say we're sorry? Because we want God to clean up the mess. And you really want God to do that. And it's an interesting concept that's there in 1 John 1, 9. Because he forgives, but you also want him to cleanse. You, you see, you just don't want him judicially saying, well, I'm not going to hold you accountable for the penalty for your sin. That's what forgiveness does. But you want him to actually cleanse it. In other words, make it as if it had never happened. That's the beauty of forgiveness. And so we tell God, look, I'm sorry. I don't want to persist in this anymore. That's what brings that wonderful forgiving and the healing and the cleansing of the stain of sin. And the reason is it's knocking at the door and it is costly. And so when you engage in it, you're you're not going to escape the consequences that come into your life. You see, the enemy, just like he told Cain, oh, you can get it. Just tell God that you don't know where your brother is. Isn't that crazy? But now I want you to think and be honest with your own self. How many times have you done exactly the same thing? And I'm not talking that there's a whole bunch of you who have murdered your own kinfolk in here. But I guarantee you that almost all of us, probably 100% of us, have tried to barter with God. Well, it's not really sin. I mean, you know how mean that person was to me. So when I stuck my knife in their tire, I was just, you know, reminding them that they were wrong. When I punched that person out at school, they deserved it. When I cheated on my taxes, well, the government's a bunch of robbers. When I got drunk, well, I self-medicated. Hitting home. Couple little, ooh, ah, ouch. We do the same thing. That's why we need Jesus. He sees sin is very costly. What we try and do is tell God, well, this isn't really sin, so there's no price that needs to be paid. I'm good. When in fact, that's not true. Those relationships that don't honor God, we, we make all the excuses in the world. Well, you know, I really love them. We're in a committed relationship. That doesn't change how God looks at it. To Him, it's still sin. To Him, it's still damaging. And you're going to pay a price for it. And where it usually happens is there's zero commitment to the relationship, actually. Oh, it looks like commitment. Kind of smells like commitment. There may even be a house and some children involved. And then all of a sudden... Eh, I'm not so sure I want to stay in this. And then the brokenheartedness, you see, what happens then is what God said, you actually find out he was absolutely true. He was perfectly correct. But you didn't want to believe what he said. You wanted to be right instead of listening to what he said. It'll cost you. Don't do it. Not because I want to be a cosmic killjoy, and not because God's trying to do that either. He knows exactly what's best for us. And he's faithful to remind us of those things. When the Holy Spirit's twisting on us a little bit and kind of grabs you by the ear and says, Jeffrey, Scott, Gill, don't do that. I don't know if God does that to you, but that's what he says to me when I'm being really obnoxious. He kind of grabs me by the ear and is like, Jeffrey, when I'm bad, I'm Jeffrey. Jeffrey, 
You're not thinking that way, are you? Well, you, you know what my day was like. You make little deals with God. Anybody in here make deals with God? I'll repent later. Sin's costly. Don't think it won't be costly. You're lying to yourself. You're kidding yourself. You're fooling yourself. And that's the worst deception of all. It's bad enough when we get deceived by somebody in the world, but when you deceive yourself, you you see, that's kind of the picture uh, that the book of James gives us as well. You you see, you believe there's one God, you do well, James 2, 18 and 19 begin. He says, "I'll, I'll show you my faith by my works. But he says, even the demons believe that God's real. So you can have a pretty clear understanding of who God is and still not listen to him. What happens is you deceive yourself. Well, I don't really need to work it out. I don't need to have faith that results in works that are righteous and loving. Somehow God accepts my little forays into the world of sin. No, actually the book of Ephesians there in chapter 2 says... You've been saved by grace and through faith. That's not of yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not of works. You can't boast about it. And it goes on in verse 10 of Ephesians 2 to say, For we are his poema, we're his workmanship. We're the writing of God's heart. We're a very specific work of art that God created purposefully and willfully for good works that God prepared before you were ever born that you should walk in them. So he's saying, don't kid yourself. God allowed Cain to live a very long time on the earth, but he paid a huge price. He was faithful to warn him. We're going to go on and see how God views all life. The gravity of choosing wrongly is you just don't want to go there. Book of Job actually says, do not cover the earth in my blood. Don't let my cry have no resting place. God, God cares about innocent people. The ninth Psalm says he avenges, but he remembers those people who are innocent. He doesn't forget the cry of the humble. God, God sees everything. Start to finish. And unless we repent, unless we get right with God... And God allows us the consequences of our actions. I know I don't want to be driven out from the presence of the Lord. I don't want to spend another day of my life outside of the presence of the Lord. So when I mess up, I'm like, God, I owe you an apology. I don't blame him anymore. I don't go, well, if you'd had my day, you would understand why I felt that way. I say, Lord, I was wrong. And I messed up. And he's quick to receive me right back and to restore that fellowship. And he'll do that for you too. Don't be wandering. Stay steadfast and movable, abounding in that work. It's not in vain in him. Amen? Just stand and bring the worship team back up and we'll pray together. Father God, tonight we are grateful for your warnings. We're actually thankful that sin has severe consequences. Lord, it should, in that sense, give us the right kind of fear, the right kind of reverence. You're right, we're wrong. It should cause us to see you for who you are. Lord, you don't put burdens on us. You've called us to live righteously and to love. You've called us to be right with you and to love each other. And so, God, we ask that tonight that would be evident in our lives. And, Lord, when we mess up, when we miss the mark, when we sin, would we be quick to repent and return to you so that our relationship can be restored with you and with our brothers and sisters, Lord, those around us. 
thank you for loving us with our faults and our weaknesses. We thank you that that grace is a free gift by faith. Lord, we realize we're not saved by works. We're saved because you first loved us. And Lord, we really do want your best. And so we pray that you'd help us in this area of obedience, God, just listening to your voice and heeding it. God, doing it, being doers of the word, not just hearers only. Father, we bless your name. We thank you for Jesus who's paid the price for all of us, Lord. Help us to be bearers of that name proudly, lovingly. And so, God, we bless you. We thank you for tonight. Pray that you'd strengthen us, Lord, as we celebrate this week, which to us has so much deep spiritual meaning. Lord, we think about those who were on the Mayflower, Lord, landing on the shores of this nation, crying out to you. The first thing that happened was a, was a Bible study when they pronounced their utter dependence upon you as God. We ask that you give us that same dependence. We bless your name. We thank you. We ask all these things in the name above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen.